Amen. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate it. Anthony's not lying about how bad that conference was. It was a pretty, pretty rough deal. We, uh, we spent most of the time just making fun of the conference together, <laughs> and so we got along pretty well on that. Thanks for the stool. Uh, so, uh, yeah, my name's Seth. I'm one of the pastors at Redemption Gateway, and I've been there about a year and a half on staff. I was on staff at a previous church in Tempe uh, called Grace for seven years before that, and I uh, have uh, been a pastor about eight, nine years now, and one of my favorite things about being a pastor is getting to do weddings. I think weddings are a lot of fun because you get to kind of like um, break people down from their real excitement and help them kind of see reality. And so, so the, the premarital process is pretty much one long list of lower your expectations. It's not going to be like that. And so, so I, I just did a wedding last night actually for this couple, and um, they're 22 and 21, and they're really excited and really in love. And over the last six months, I've been kind of undoing that a bit before they got married, trying to help them just kind of come down to reality and have real expectations, and because everybody wants that perfect wedding day, you know, and everybody wants everything to be perfect, and yesterday's wedding was pretty much perfect, except for my fly was down for the whole ceremony, and so, so that was the, I committed the cardinal sin of pretty much ever being on stage, and so I've checked my fly like 19 times this morning, because right after the ceremony, some kind gentleman said like, hey, your fly's down, I'm going, oh, great, well, Sorry for ruining your perfect wedding day. So, so that's kind of how that goes. But the, the thing that's beautiful about the wedding ceremony is that there's a moment where you make a vow and you pledge. There's this I do. And someone goes from being two to one. They go from, no, from being male and female to now being one flesh, not married to married. And there's this power of the confession and the vow made where their status um, in reality is changed, not just in God's eyes, but like in, in functional reality. They go from being two to being one. And there's, people kind of always say that like it, it, does, it takes a long time to sink in. Like you don't feel married right after you say, I do. And you don't really feel married the next day. But there's this long process of actually walking into your new existence, your new reality. So your position changes, but your disposition hasn't yet changed. And so there's a lot of those things that still, we've been married, my wife and I have been married about four and a half going on five years, and there's still a lot of things in me that I have left over from my unmarried life. Like, for example, I think that my clothes belong wherever they end up. That's where I think that my clothes belong. Or I think that my shoes belong wherever I took them off. And I'm still learning how that that's bachelor behavior, that's not husband behavior. And there's, there's this ongoing process in my marriage of putting off the way that I used to live as an unmarried person, putting on the way I now live as a married person. It's even worse now with millennials and social media where there's folks saying things like, so you think that now my wife needs access to my phone? Yes, obviously. Do you think that I should stop Facebook messaging all these girls? I don't know. Probably. You definitely. Yes. You probably never should have been doing that in the first place. And now you definitely should not be doing that. But there's this ongoing recognition of there are things that you do before you're married, and now there are things that you don't do when you are married. And that's a process, and that's one of the reasons why marriage takes a long time to work out. And that's one of the reasons why sometimes people's first year of marriage is the hardest, is because there's all this great exposure of, I thought that this was okay behavior, but now I come to find out that's not how you load the dishwasher, you do it a different way. And there's, there's these little things bit by bit that go on. And that's really what we see here in this text is a similar metaphor, that just as when you get married, you are married in reality, something actually changes. You experience a momentary conversion of being two people to being one flesh. There's a real change, but there's an ongoing process of working out and walking into that new unity. Similarly, as a church, 
we have a similar process that we have to go through, where we go from being not a people to coming to Christ, turning to him in faith and repentance, and now we are a people. We once were not, and now we are. We were not a community, now we are a community, because as we're converted, we come to Christ in faith and repentance, we leave behind our old way of being, and we walk in now a new way, a new unified way, and that's actually really how we are. And that's what this Ephesians text is all about, is it's calling us to walk in light of that unity. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. This is what this text is saying. You once were individuals, now you're a community. Act like it. And so my big idea from this text this morning is we need our disposition to match our position. We need the way that we feel. We need to work at developing a disposition that matches our position. Just like in marriage, you need to work to match how you act, the way that you're acting out to feel, to match the way that you actually are as a newly married couple. And we as a church need to work on that. It's work, so it's painful. It's work, so it requires intentionality and effort. And it's disposition. It's kind of a matter of feel and experience, but it's recognizing our position that's already been granted to us in Christ. And so we're going to see how this text is calling us to walk, to make, to work, to make our disposition match our position. So let me pray, and then I'm going to walk through three points in this text. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for redemption that is um, one in ten, and how I get to be here with my brothers and sisters in Flagstaff, my extended family, uh, my cousins, I am grateful for um, the opportunity to stand um, with them and sit under your word with them. I pray that I will be accurate and helpful and clear and that we'd all be encouraged and convicted and uh, shown what it looks like to walk as more faithful uh, people in your family. Amen. Amen. So first, I'm going to focus on our position, our positional unity. And by what I mean by this is the sense in which we are certainly unified. This is what the text is getting at here in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is, who is over all and through all and in all. And so the main point that Paul's making there is one. Not multiple, not factions, not divisions, but one. And he reiterates it again and again and again, saying that if you are in Christ, then you are one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. We should not see ourselves as separate from or in factions with other people within our church because on a real level, we are not. Even though it might feel like it, that's just not the case. Eugene Peterson says this. He says... This. Go to the next slide, I think. (laughs) One is not what the church looks like to outsiders. In fact, it's not even what it seems to be most of the time to insiders, but this is what it is. Is. And so even though we experience the church is divided, even though the, the church is divided up into all these different denominations, and even though within this community there might be like ex-boyfriends and girlfriends and different, different conflicts and different whatever it is, I can't believe you're in that small group, not my small group, even though we functionally experience it as this disconnected place or this broken place, in a real ontological level, the church is unified. 
Even if it looks like from outsiders like it's not, even if it looks like from insiders that are experienced that it isn't, it really is. And this is important for us to recognize that this is why it is grace that makes us a people. Because if we had to earn being of the people of God by being unified, we would never get there. And so our position, our unity in the body of Christ is given to us by Christ as a gift. It is an effort, it is the effort of God on his behalf, on our behalf, to make us a people such that it is grace alone, the gospel alone, that makes us a people. It's not our faithfulness, it's not our ability, it's not what we bring to the table. This is one of the reasons why the gospel is not advice, the gospel is news. It is announcement of the fact that Christ has entered into history, that he lived a sinless life, that he died a two strength death death and he rose again from the grave and he right now by his spirit is reigning and ruling over the church that is news it's not enough for debate it's just to be received it's news that demands response and this reality that if you are in christ you are one and the same with the brothers in christ shapes the way that we move from this this is why our position is secure a lot of you here in this room probably don't feel like your position in Christ is secure. There's a sense in which you feel like you still have to do something or do a series of things or make it a week without doing X before finally you can be secure in Christ. Or maybe there's a sense in which you have this subtle sense in which you have to keep earning what has already been paid for. Have you ever tried to pay someone for a gift they gave you? It's really awkward and clunky. Here's a gift. Oh, well, here's 20 bucks. No, uh, and it creates this awkwardness. That's how most of our Christian faith feels. We feel awkward all the time because we're kind of trying to pay back God this gift that he gave us when all he wants us to do is in gratitude receive and recognize his work for us. And so our positional unity, our positional security is on the foundation of Christ's work by his grace Period. Our unification as a people, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall, is something we need to recognize and not try to add to. One of the ways that we're tempted to disbelieve this text is in the ways that we're really critical of other Christians and other Christian churches and other Christian denominations. I feel that all the time, especially when I'm around non-Christians. Non-Christians come to me and say something like, hey, Seth, what's the deal with those batch of idiots. And I feel like, oh, well, I mean, like, they're not like me. They're like other types of Christians. They're not really like, like Christian like me. And, and I feel this like pressure to throw my brothers and sisters under the bus for the sake of like my own personal image maintenance. Or even when new people come to Redemption Gateway and people come to our church and they're like, oh, this is a great church. It's not like that other church that I used to be at. They were totally awful and there's all these problems that they had. And so we make a really strong effort as pastors to get to know the other pastors in the area. So when someone comes to our church to badmouth the other church, we can say, like, oh, yeah, so-and-so, yeah, he's a friend of mine. What did you have to say about him? <laughs> and part of that's try to, trying to obey this text. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. And even though it might make me feel really good to compare my church to other churches or to compare my Christianity to other Christianities, that is fundamentally undoing and undermining the work of grace that God has done to make people a people. That as soon as I start judging other congregations, other churches, and saying like, well, they're not the real expression of the faith, we're the real expression of the faith, now I'm essentially saying that we have polished ourselves up enough to be faithful Christians, whereas they, grace wasn't enough for them. 
And it really reveals a subtle legalism in my heart to want to compare and contrast who's the better, more faithful, who's the more accurate. And some of that's helpful when we're trying to discern false doctrine, but most of that, if I'm honest, is a way of preserving my status as like a special, privileged mouthpiece. And some of you might feel that as well, being here at Redemption, kind of a church plant. All of life is all for Jesus. None of that compartmentalized nonsense at other places. And there's just a real temptation of self-righteousness there. And one of the reasons we like being disunified, even when Christ says he's made us unified, is so that we can have tribes and pick teams within the family of God. And that's pretty evil. So our unity is certain. Our unity is received, not achieved. Our unity is a work of grace, not a work of our works. However, our disposition is something that we are responsible for. How do we feel to people? I know that disposition is a pretty subjective word. How, do you, how are you experiencing one another? What do you feel like in a room? What's it like to have a conversation with that person? And so what Paul's calling us here is not calling us to be unified, rather to call, he's calling us to walk in such a way that's in line with the fact of our unity. We can't create our unity, but we can walk out and walk faithfully in light of our unity. And so this is our next point. We need to make our disposition match our position. And so our position is unified, and so dispositionally, we need to begin to work to walk towards this disposition. So what is this disposition? Read with me in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. These three very simple words are pretty shocking to me, especially if you've been with us through Ephesians so far. There's all this major triumphalistic language of Christ being seated at the right hand, ruling over all things in the heavenly places, summing up again all things united under Christ, in him before the foundation of the world, you're predestined, etc., 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 push back the darkness, establish a new community, victory over sin and death, and you kind of say, like, what's it going to look like for us to walk in that triumphant victory? And you get these three words, humility, gentleness, and patience. So how do we participate in this victory of God over the realm of sin and death? How do we participate in this victory of God over the powers at be, pushing back against the false kings and the false gods? And it's these three simple words, humility, gentleness, and patience. And these three things kind of have something in common here. Humility, is not taking yourself seriously, but taking God seriously. That when I see God as very serious, and I see myself as just a child in his kingdom, I feel free to take myself less seriously. I feel free to take a joke. I feel free to not have to be on edge about how people are perceiving me. C.S. Lewis said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not just self-hatred, but it's actually thinking of yourself less. It's taking yourself less seriously. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people who are really insecure and really kind of needy are told that they're humble. That's not humble. That's just passive narcissism. Real humility is not insecurity and it's not arrogance. Rather, real humility is a confidence that God reigns over all things and so I can be myself without constantly navel-gazing and self-evaluating and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So humility is taking 
yourself less seriously. Gentleness is taking your power less seriously, not domineering and leveraging yourself on people at every turn. And patience is taking your timeline less seriously. So even though I trust God's reign and rule, it's on his time, not my time. That when I'm getting impatient, on a real way, I'm saying, I, my timeline should be the one that is running the universe. And so humility is taking yourself less seriously. Gentleness is taking your own power and privilege less seriously. And patience is taking God's timeline, is taking your timeline less seriously. And it's all a way of saying that if God is reigning and ruling, and if God's in control of these things, then I can be a faithful, active participant without having to just all be manipulative about things that are going on here. And these three words are extremely subjective. Humility, gentleness, and patience. This is why I use the word disposition to describe them, because you have to be told in community and experienced in community to know whether you're these three things. This happens a good amount in marriage counseling when people come in, and the husband isn't gentle, either emotionally or verbally, sometimes physically, but a lot of the times, the husband thinks he's gentle. Oh, I mean, like, but I experience him as this domineering, manipulative, overbearing, and so if you really want to kind of get it between the eyes and really recognize, am I humble, am I gentle, am I patient? You really need to be in community. If you're not in a community, you can't be held accountable in terms of your character. You need to be in a community, and you need to have the security to ask and get real feedback. Do you experience me as gentle? Do you experience me as patient? Do you experience me as humble? The opposite of those things being prideful, harsh, or impatient, obviously. But a lot of that kind of like flusterable, anxious presence. A lot of it is just a result of taking my timeline very seriously and not taking God's timeline at face value. Do you feel like that? Because in order for us to be a unified people, in order for Redemption Flagstaff to be and feel unified, for us to function in community, these are the characteristics it takes for us to actually be a family, for us to actually walk in oneness with one another. Because if you lack humility, gentleness, and patience, there will be an ever-growing division, ever-growing tension, ever-growing hostility. Because without these three things, you're living in your flesh, and it's your agenda, and it's your way or the highway, and you end up feeling wrong. The way that people experience you is wrong. This is another one of the reasons why at Redemption we tend to be really slow to put people in leadership is because someone might have a great resume, but the way they feel in a room or the way they feel in a conversation is abrasive or awkward. This stuff is discerned in community over time. Are you humble? Are you patient? Are you gentle? Sometimes people think these, those are feminine characteristics, and those people are wrong. We'll move on to the next one, all right? So the next thing, we must work to make our disposition match our position. Sometimes, as evangelical Protestants, we're nervous about the word work because we're nervous about people might be, be 
start to think legalistically. I don't want to work because I don't want to work to earn anything. I don't want to work to contribute to what God has done. I don't want to work. However, this misunderstands what legalism is. Legalism is not saying work is required of you. Legalism is saying that work is required of you in order to earn God's favor. If you're a Christian, that means that the work of Christ on your behalf is fully sufficient for you to be accepted by God and spend eternity with him. However, when you get adopted into God's family, they're in a real way you have chores to do in the house. There's a job he's calling us into, that God has a purpose for this world, he has a mission in this world, and he's calling a people to himself so that they can get busy participating in what he's doing in and around the world. And one of these reasons for this is I just really appreciate the honesty of the text here in Ephesians. Make every effort to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk it out. You must move your feet. Get off the couch. Get out of the chair. Walk. Do something. Go somewhere. You are somewhere. You must go somewhere else. Walk. Bearing with one another in love. That is a brutally honest sentence. Bearing with one another. If I tell my wife, and she asked me, how's our marriage? I said, oh, I'm bearing with you. That's pretty negative. That word could be translated tolerate. That word could be translated uh, like painfully waiting on. But there's, like, there's a bearing with thing going on here. There's a very real sense in which you will have to tolerate, bear with one another as family. Every family experiences this. Every church experiences this. Sometimes people, as soon as they hit tension and they hit a rub, there's this feel of like, bailing, I'm out, it's getting hard. However, Paul is very honest. He's not just painting an optimistic picture of like, and now because you're in Christ, no more problems. He's saying, now because you're in Christ, tolerate one another. That's not a very captivating word. Just deal with it. Our culture is obsessed with tolerance. Everyone tolerate everyone. Everyone tolerate everyone. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. And I'm just going like, you know, that's like a pretty negative word, right? Like, hey, I disagree with you, but I'll tolerate you. I disagree with you, but I'll bear with you. There's just a real honesty to the real rub of some of this stuff. That it's not always going to be smooth sailing. It's not always going to be easy. Likewise here, it says, make every effort eager to maintain the unity. There's a work, I'm a, I, there's a, in my heart, I have this dispositional desire that I'm going to have to work to maintain this unity, that I'm going to have to bear with one another in love, that there is real work required of me. Part of that is just me softening my heart and getting over stuff, bearing with people, but there's also this active, participatory obedience I have to walk in. See, not every conflict requires a mediation meeting. It's another thing I ask in marriage counseling. They, people come in for counseling, and I say, so every marriage has conflict. What pushed you over the edge that made you feel like you need counseling? Because there's like an appropriate level of we're working this thing out, but then there's like another level of we need help with what we're dealing with. And trying to help people begin to discern between what's like the acceptable level of bearing with one another versus this is kind of on the rocks and we need some outside help. But that acceptable level of bearing with one another is part of like the daily sanctifying, grinding it out work for us as Christians, that you're not gonna love everybody in your small group. You're not gonna love everybody who sits next to you in church. You're not gonna like have this great natural affection for everyone that walks in your door or serves with you in ministry. And part of that is this, 
this beforehand commitment as Christians to say, even though I may not have this like natural affinity with every person in my church, I will make every effort eager to maintain the unity with them by pursuing them, moving towards them, listening to them, getting to know them, and bearing with them as they go about enjoying their stuff. There's some people in my small group who have hobbies that I think are totally ridiculous, and they talk about them, and I'm like, oh, wow, sounds fun to never do. I'm not going to do that with you. I'm not going to do that. But part of what it is is bearing with one another in love is me deciding to be interested in them because they're my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I want us to be a community. Now, I'm not going to go do their horseback riding thing that they want to do, but I do want to take an interest in my brothers and sisters and be invested in what they care about, even though I may not inside myself care one iota. I care about them, so therefore I care about what they care about. This is part of what it takes to be a people, to move towards one another. We see other examples in Scripture that are pretty rough about what this work actually functionally looks like. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper, talking about communion. So this communion picture of taking communion together is a demonstration and a proclamation every single week of what it is to be a unified people. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So the church at Corinth is gathering like this, and while they come, there's these divisions and factions and disagreements. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Just pause there. That is a harsh condemnation that when there are divisions in the church and you take the body and blood of Jesus, it is not the Lord's Supper. It's just a snack. The converse saying, when you come together and you're unified and you're a people, you are taking the Lord's Supper, reminding yourself that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father overall. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, he's talking about the unity of the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. In our membership document from Redemption Church, one of the things it says on the headline of church discipline is that people who stir up division should be the most swiftly dealt with when it comes to disciplining the body. Part of this is in our effort to obey this, that if there are people in our church who are refusing to seek unity, who are walking in division, who are not working to make their disposition match their position, it invalidates the Lord's Supper. And they drink judgment on themselves. Some of you today may need to not take the Lord's Supper because there's conflict with people in this room that you need to deal with. There's division that you have yet to resolve. And for your own sake, don't take the Lord's Supper until you've resolved the division among you. Because if you take the Lord's Supper, knowing full well that you are not unified with someone in this church, you drink judgment on yourself. That's work. That's rubber meets the road stuff there. Everyone in the world is excited about unity until you start to actually have the conversations. Everyone's excited about being one people until you actually start to have to make concessions and ask for forgiveness and repent. 
Here's another example in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. So if you're offering, so if you are offering your gift at the altar, so tithing, and remember that your brother has come against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. Be reconciled first to your, to your brother, then come offer your gift. So in this context, the Jews would walk for days, days and days, to go to the altar, to make an offering to the Lord. And Jesus, Lord in the flesh, is saying, leave it, take another walk, solve your dispute, then come back and make the offering. See, the reason that Paul emphasizes this so strongly, both in Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 11, is because Christ himself emphasized it. In John 17, John, Jesus prays for the gospel as well. And so Paul's passion becomes his passion because it is first the Lord Jesus' passion. I just want to just kind of lean and let this meditate for a minute, that some of you may even have come to give to the church today. Don't give it if you have unresolved tension, unresolved conflict. Some of you may want to skip communion today, pull someone aside during the reflection time later. This unity is a serious, serious matter. There's really kind of two things that I hear from non-Christians about why they don't become Christians. And both of them have to do with the conduct of believers. One is they're a bunch of hypocrites. And to that, I say, yeah, read the scriptures. We're all hypocrites. That's how, kind of how it is. Paul's saying here to, in this Ephesians text, like, hey, you got to work to do this. Like, not all these people are pleasant. It's going to take some work. And so people are like, oh, I don't like non-Christian. I don't like Christians sometimes. I'm like, that's fine. Neither did Paul. He had to bear with people. You know, that's kind of, kind of how it goes. You don't have to like them all. You just have to, like, love them all. That's fine. The second thing is like, man, they're just so unified. They're just so disunified. You know, which is the true church? Which is the right church? And obviously, we as Redemption Flagstaff can't solve the global church being divided, but we have to begin where we can, and that's here. Pursuing real, difficult unity that takes work, that takes humility, that takes gentleness, that takes patience. I hear a lot of times people say like, oh, I tried to reconcile with them, but it didn't work. Well, how long did you try for? I sent one text, and like five minutes later, I didn't respond, so we're still disunified. It's like, it's patience. There's, a, there's an enduring necessity here that it is work to make our disposition match our position. If it didn't take work, we'd all just be unified. And so what are some of the ways in your pattern of life? What are some of the ways in your nuclear families? What are some of the things in your small group or your church at Redemption Flagstaff, the ways that you have been speaking about other churches here in Flagstaff that you probably need to repent of this morning? Because there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and one God and Father over all, who's through all, and in all, and over all, and we are in him. Even if you feel like you're not connected to the other churches in the area, you are connected to every single believer who has ever turned to Jesus in faith and repentance. No matter how much you might disagree with them politically, no matter how much you might disagree with them economically, no matter how much you've never even talked to them, you are one in Christ with them. This is one of the reasons why when I hear people say we're talking about um, racism in the church, and they'll say things like, I didn't own slaves, I don't need to repent of that, or I'm not racist, I don't need to repent of that. Um, This is one of the texts that I go to, because we are one in Christ, 
And so any sin that a believer commits, I commit with them. That the body of Christ did those things. And I'm a part of the body of Christ. And so I can repent of that. I can apologize for that. I can own that. And so we shouldn't go around saying whose sin is whose sin and whatever, but we, the body of Christ, we are one people. And so I want to own and take responsibility for my brothers and sisters. I want to own and take responsibility for the ways in which other people in the church have sinned against people, have sinned against God, and have made the world a harder place to live in. Because my position is unified. And I have to make an effort to walk in unity and gentleness and patience. Um, we're going to now transition into a time of reflection after uh, the sermon we just heard. And I want us all to kind of really sit with this. Sit with the ways in which we are not walking in unity. Sit with the ways in which we have unity to pursue. Sit with the reality that even though on the outside the church might look like a total mess, in a real, biblical, from God's eyes point of view way, we are one in Christ. And that is something that we receive by his grace. And that is good news. Yet there's still work to be done. We must work to maintain the unity. We must work to walk in the way in which he's called us. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take a moment to wrestle. God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. I thank you for their heart. I thank you for um, their willingness to sit under your word, for their willingness to show up here this morning and be preached at, their willingness to show up here this morning and worship. And I pray that we would all have soft hearts to hear what you have to tell us. God, I pray for the people in the room who are still feeling like they have to earn your approval and earn your favor and earn being a part of your body, that you'd help them get a fresh picture of what grace is. They would acknowledge the fact that you've done for them what they could not do for themselves and that you have made us a people when we were not a people. And God, I pray for all of us in this room that having received your grace, we'd have the endurance and the courage and the gentleness and the patience it requires to walk in the way in which you've called us, to live out this unity, to live out our new identity, that we'd stop living as unmarried people and start living as married people. Help us flesh this out. I pray your spirit will lead us. Amen.